I start seeing. I did. Yeah, last I, week. yeah, I do. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig and Parker Doman. This is episode two hundred and forty-three. So I have an update on the battery debacle from last week. Just remind us what what happened. So what happened last? Well, a week and a half ago at this point was. My I have a bunch of batteries for my cars, and the battery tender that I have hooked them all hooked up all to all of them uh, decided to hit the buck you know kick the bucket, and it took the batteries with it, and uh, basically what I can uh, what I can figure out is one of the cells inside of the battery tender took a dump, and then it drained all the batteries. Um, I was able to recover two of the batteries fully, at least in terms of, you know, they fully charged up and you can hit them on, with a starter motor and they crank engines over perfectly fine. But the the main one, the one that killed everything, um, that one is no longer with us. Was that the $400 one? Yeah, that was the $400 one. Oh. Yeah. The good thing is I did buy that one used. Um so I only paid two hundred dollars for it, which is like still that's still you know not a cheap battery. Um, so and I went today and because uh, I ordered it last week, the, a replacement battery, and it showed up today. Went to go pick it up, and yeah, it's completely fine now. But yeah, that battery has become a core deposit in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> jo- Josh, please uh, please play us some sad music here. This music was removed by artificial intelligence for copyright infringement. Morons. So yeah, I did get a spare. Uh, that that company um, ended up sending me a replacement tender. Um, I don't think I'm going to use it because I don't really trust this brand anymore. The battery butler. Yeah, the battery battery butler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I probably won't uh, use the replacement because the one I got. To replace the one that went went is a lot better unit. Um, so you can see Steven in the background. There's the box that the the new old one came in. Mm. Um, I'm thinking about actually like opening it up and see if it has the same kind of like poor solder quality to it as I think the you other should. one did. I mean, it's, what do you, it's a it's a paperweight for you now, right? Yeah, I'm ac- I'm thinking about actually bring it basically bring it down to Galveston. And then um, let my dad use it because he's got a lot of twelve volt batteries for like boats and stuff. Oh, and the uh, uh, golf cart. the golf cart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. How how many batteries are in the golf cart? Is it two? No, it's thirty six volts with six volt batteries, so it has six batteries in it. Oh wow. Okay, I didn't yeah. know it ran on six. Is that standard for golf carts? Yeah, that's that's standard. Um, <laughs> so in golf cart world, you have six, eight, and twelve volt batteries. And so a lot of the lower voltage ones, um, I say lower voltage, 36 volt. So in golf carts, 36 volts and 48 volts, and now 72 volts are like common battery voltages or banks for for golf carts. And so my parents have a 36 volt, and we're going to upgrade it to 48 volts this uh, winter. We're going to put four 12 volt batteries in it. Okay. Lithium. Is there some kind of like a, like master controller, or can you just like overcharge it? So yeah, uh, the stock ECM or yeah ECM, the electrical motor controller or EMC, I should say. Actually, mm. um, you have to replace that with a new one. 
but that's it. Uh, usually, a lot of times, the motors, you have to check your motor, of course, but most of them are rated to a lot higher voltage than what the golf carts use them at. So you can put more voltage in them. It's fine. Basically, the big thing is you limit the... You can, you can run more voltage, but you limit the current. And so basically, your total power output to the motor has got to be the same. Got it, got it, yeah. Uh, but usually, I think the golf cart motor that my parents have, it's rated at 96 volts. So you can't exceed 96 volts, but you can put whatever voltage you want up to that, and you just limit the current, and you just make sure the total wattage is the same, and you're fine. I, get, I could just see it now. Parker's mom has got a bottle of wine in her hand, and she's popping wheelies as, as she goes <laughs> down the street in Galveston. <laughs> that is... I really wanted to go to 72 volts because it would it could do burnouts at that point. Um, <laughs> Does it actually have pneumatic tires or are they just hard plastic? It's pneumatic. Okay. Yeah, it got it's got real tires on it. Yeah. Um, you, you could put forklift tires on it and then really peel out. <laughs> no traction. <laughs> don't 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 tell anyone at Walmart. But when I worked there many years ago, the parking lot used to get wet when it would rain, and we would totally peel out in the forklift. <laughs> We did that at Fab once. Did we? Yeah. That was know. when we 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 rented that big forklift. Oh, yeah, yeah, and everyone got to drive. Yeah, we all got to drive it in the back parking lot. <laughs> right. Don't tell the rental company. No, no. But uh yeah, and then it rained that afternoon and then we all drove it out there and did donuts. <laughs> That's was, right. That that was a that's the biggest forklift I've ever driven. We had to get a Heller 1703 or what? Yeah, it was 1703, I think. We had to get that that. off of a off of a flatbed, and it was just like, how we're doing this? Well, it's just that forklift was ginormous. Because I remember, oh man, getting the uh, when we were when we bought the the Micronic, the first one, and we were this was that old Fab. Oh yeah. Yeah, this and we good. so it came on a flatbed truck. Yeah, and how that shop was set up is it was the the floor was elevated above grade, and so you had a dock high um, loading dock, but you also had a ramp. Well, we couldn't go through the dock high because the it was too it was too skinny. wide. Yeah, the, 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 the Micronic the, was too wide for it. Yeah, the Micronic box was too wide, and so yeah. it wouldn't fit through the bay doors. And so the only way was to basically back it up into the loading dock, area, the ramp. And But we couldn't do that because it, the place was built out with offices there. And so, like, you only had, like, 10 feet to turn whatever you got up in there. <laughs> so you couldn't, like, back – you couldn't, like, put it on a trailer, so to speak, and back it in there. Yeah. Which was, like, what I – would have been make it would be so much easier but anyways so we we got it off the flatbed and put it onto another flatbed truck that was smaller but it was a it was a flat tow truck it was a flat tow truck because yeah. it had a tilting bed <laughs> right and so so because we, we had to get it halfway up the ramp and then tilt the bed a bit and then as we were backing it up, tilt the bed more and more because like it was like ceiling clearance or there was some reason yeah, we had to do so that. so ridiculous. Because yeah, we had ceiling <laughs> clearance issues. And so you had to like tilt the bottom. And then we got it all the way in, right? Yeah. And then we yeah, had yeah, another yeah. forklift in there that was definitely too small to pick this thing up. 100%. And 
Because you would pick it up. Because you had to have uh, extensions on the forks, which you're not supposed to use in Yeah, Osho does not look kindly upon fork extensions. Yeah, but so you had to have fork extensions on this forklift, and you picked it up, and they were bowed like crazy. <laughs> And then we slowly backed that thing off, and then the no, truck. No, I remember move. we had to lift this two hundred thousand dollar pick and place machine that was brand new. We had to lift it almost to the maximum of of the forklift, such that the uh, flatbed truck could get out and tip its its yeah. bed. And so I remember all of us are sitting there. Our butts are so puckered, we could have cut steel with them. Like, everyone was just <laughs> like, oh my god, are we going to drop this $200,000 pick and, and so, machine? the next time we accepted a big crate like that um, uh, from Micronic, it was the uh, it was the other pick and place, and we just hired a company to unload it. <laughs> yeah, and it was probably ten times easier, right? Oh, yeah, they showed up with the right equipment and then did it immediately. Um I think the Heller was the last thing we unloaded ourselves. The Heller, actually... yeah, I rent. I was the one who had to rent that forklift, and and like the problem was like I had to tell the forklift company what we were picking up with it, and they're like, "We're not letting you get anything other than this forklift." I was like, "Fine." So we got an enormous. Forklift. It was huge. <laughs> but yeah, the thing is though is like it, it lifted up no problem. We moved everything, it put it back down, and that was it. Yeah, it, it was, was like, super easy. Yeah, I, I what ha with that first one it was. We just, we, oh, I, I remember what it was. It was one of our neighbors in, in the, um, in the, in the warehouse the complex. area complex. Yeah. They had a forklift and we're like, Hey, we, you know, we have to lift this thing up and move it. And we gave him the weight and like, do you think your forklift can do it? And he said, sure. <laughs> it was like on the Ish. max of what that forklift could do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> there was, there was not a safety margin on that forklift for it. You know, it's funny. We don't have a forklift at work, but we've had many, many situations where we uh, have needed a forklift to move our equipment around. And uh, we're so lucky because uh, we have some neighbors, you know, a few uh, few buildings down that does have a forklift. I cannot tell you how many times I've walked over with a case of beer and been like, hey, can we uh, get you to lift something real quick? And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, didn't you have the draw when you got that big forklift? Didn't you have to drive it down the road? Or how did I get that? Actually, uh, so they delivered that. They delivered that on a, uh, uh, a right, flatbed. Right. And, right. uh, and our, our shipping manager at the time was the only one. Well, I've, I've driven a forklift plenty, but I was like, ah, it's been a while. And, and he was the only one who had, or he had the most recent experience with driving yeah. a forklift. So it's like, this is all on you, champ. <laughs> Luckily, he did it like no problem. Yeah, that that was Colbert. No, that was uh, that was Bob. That was that was, was Bob. Yeah, that was Bobby. He did it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even Colbert was like, eh, "I'm not." <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, th those were good times. Yeah, rent renting heavy equipment's always a blast. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny we... too because like I rented that forklift and I rented it for I think the minimum amount because we rented this forklift because we had to get one box off of one truck once like yes. that was that was the whole t thing i rented this forklift and i rented it for i think the minimum amount of time was a day and a half or something like that yeah usually it's like 36 hours it's like 36 hours so i rented it when i was done i called them i'm like we're done you can pick it up and they left it in our parking lot for like five days like yeah they just picked storage. it up whenever they wanted to pick it up I was that's like, free storage <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. It just stayed there until the next person needed it. Probably. I bet you they picked it up and just... It probably got rained on and everything, too. Well, that's outdoor equipment. Yeah. But remember that, that scissor lift we had? Uh, Did you ever drive that scissor lift around? I don't... I have driven a scissor lift, but I don't remember one at the fab. It was when we were doing the, the final build-out of the new... I say new location. We've been there for like four years now. Um, they It was... Uh, the contractors had it. Huh. So I don't remember that. Yeah, they just left it outside for like a couple weeks. <laughs> so. Fun times. Yeah. No, enough. Yeah, we've wasted 12 minutes of your time regaling you with nostalgia here. Yeah, about <laughs> forklifts. So one of your batteries died, or two of your batteries died, but... No. No, two lived. Two I lived, was able one to recover died. two of them. One yeah. died, yeah. I think it was because... Two of the batteries are just deep cycles. They're not starting. Um, and they have they have a higher internal resistance normally than a starting battery would. And uh, so they might have been safe from whatever happened in that charger. Because that's the thing is we pulled the board out and looked at it. There's nothing wrong with the board. So something other, something else happened to it. Maybe that microcontroller that's key... Uh, Description is what was it again? Um, it wasn't value saving or something like that, but it was. Um, oh, what was it? Well, I don't remember. I have to look. I'm gonna have to look this up. So, so I, I realize I haven't really looked into this. How many amps does a starter pull from a cold start? Like a few hundred. Yes, few hundred. Uh, usually, like for a. A medium-sized V8 engine. The starters, they're rated at. They're not rated at 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 rotation. They they have a stall rating. So if you stalled it, what it would pull, which is basically like your instantaneous, like when you click it, because it's it, it's initial. Well, if you stall it, it's just the resistance of the coils. Yeah, yeah, but they're rated at the that amperage. Um, it's because basically when you turn the key, it starts at stall and then moves. Right. Um, so yeah, as soon as you turn the key, that's what it's drawing effectively. Yeah. But then there's a continuous when it's rotating, which is a lot less. But you have to hit you have to get that hit, that, that amperage hit. And <laughs> for the wagon, which is an AMC three sixty engine, which doesn't really matter, it's they're all about the same. Um, it's three hundred amps okay. of stall. So you, you get basically a three hundred amp instantaneous uh hit and then it probably is like 90 to 100 to continually rotate it. Um, oh, yes, that's right. The microcontroller's key feature is cost-effective. So um, I don't want to trust my new $350 battery to a cost-effective microcontroller <laughs> <laughs> to make sure it doesn't die again. So, yeah. Fun. What have you been up to, Steven? You know, um, actually, so earlier today, was it today? I think it is. It was today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, earlier today, someone on the Slack channel, uh, RF Dave, posted a question that he posted it, and then uh, I, I started thinking about it, and, and it was going through my head all day, and I was like, you know what? I want to talk about that on a podcast because I'm curious to know your opinion, and, you know, I feel like if we were doing a live cast this time, uh, this would be a good conversation to have with people 
So Arv Dave posted this question. Am I the only person who hates a schematic con consisting of one connector, two ICs, four bypass caps, with all of the interconnects being done with net names and no interconnecting wires? I feel personally attacked. <laughs> <laughs> that's like my schematic well here's the thing okay you and i have talked about this topic multiple multiple times so this is nothing new for the podcast but what i'm what i'm kind of curious about is like is there a standard or what's the best way to do this because there's an easy way and there's kind of a really shitty way to do it in terms of being able to read the schematic but it's even easier because you don't have to type in net names you could just spaghetti all the connectors together uh, but I'm kind of curious about this situation because I'm actually designing a board right now that has multiple connectors that connects different boards together and even at different locations on different boards it connects them together uh, and I, I've sort of I have my way that I like to do it and it's a kind of a hybrid between net names and wires at the same time so I, I think I agree with RF Dave like yeah, if, if, if there's a simple schematic where you can show the connector on, a schem uh, on the schematic as, like, one item, that's sort of the best way, if you can get away with that, mm -hmm. you know? But I don't know, what are your thoughts on that part? So I, I draw mine with the connector is one part, like a symbol. Mm -hmm. It depends on how complicated it is, uh, the board is, whether or not it's actually connected to things or it's just connected to nets um yeah i think what the there's not there's not a standard at all with this what you really have to do is who's the schematic for hmm. is it you because you're the only one dealing with the hardware or is it a team or a company and if that's the case and you have to come up with a standard that everyone agrees on and there's there's a threshold but the threshold's not like a touchdown line where like the ball just has to touch it and then you get a touchdown right it's it's this big gray scale of of what how complex something gets because like something can be super complicated but then you only have one little segment of the circuit that you can draw out and like like let's say uh, an op amp with a feedback circuit and it connects to a sensor you can draw that all as one little thing and it, when you look at it you don't need net names right because you you can see the feedback loop and the bypass cap is there and all that good stuff but then you go okay now i have this ginormous 800 pin fpga that's also in the design yep. that is connected to like 483 backplane connectors right right or pins in a backplane connector it's like drawing like it, even drawing out all those little lines wouldn't help you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, especially if you're the end result of or if you're the person reading the schematic and all you get is a PDF where you can't like search by net names or click yeah. on a net name like it's virtually worthless. You're sitting there with your finger trying to follow lines and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not like it's not like in the in a in the EDA tool when you you can just like right click a net and then just get like or in, in Eagle it's like you just hit show. Right. And then it highlights it as a different color so you can easily see it on your screen and trace it because like even even in super complicated things drawing stuff out with the line or with a with a net line doesn't really help you so it's it's you got to figure out where that that scale is at where whatever is um 
complicated enough to where you have to switch over. And it might be the moment that that line or that net line goes off the page to somewhere else. And so you have, you would have to scroll in your schematic because like, like you use different, um, different pages for your schematics. Yeah. I use, lots I know of a pages. lot of people do that. Um, I don't, um, uh, but I know a lot of people do that. So it could be, if you have to go to a different page, then yes, you have to, you have to go nets, right? You just have to, mm-hmm. um, but uh, for like me, I view it as if I have to pan somewhere else to see where a trace goes, that's pretty much has to be a net now and a virtual trace, right? Uh, I don't know. What's a good word for that? Yeah. That, that green or yeah, a net name. Um, but yeah, yeah I, what I've started doing, with- yeah, but what I've started doing is I made a, in, in Eagle at least, you can... You can do it by net name where it just puts the name down, but you can also make it like a tag. So it like it draws a bounding box over the around the text. And so it looks like a test point flag. And so that makes it a lot easier to read that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I should post some some uh, schematic images of like simple stuff versus complex stuff I've done. Um, But I've actually, you know, when you start working at Microfab ages and ages ago, I started doing my schematics more like you because you complained about how shitty mine were. And yes, they <laughs> I were didn't shitty. say shitty. They were shitty. No, they're hard to follow. They were hard to follow. That's not necessarily shitty. Yeah, that's shitty. Yeah, actually, you know it's interesting. So uh, at, at WMD, we've talked about this a handful of times. In fact, we were talking about this today because we're 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 training up some new people in terms of uh, doing electronic this- diagnostics. And uh, and some of our legacy products stuff designed six seven years ago, were were done where there were no net names. Every connection has a connection, and so if you look at it, you pull it up, and it's zoomed way far out, and there's just wires going everywhere, and 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 you know spaghetti. That's that's just how the you know the designer did it at that time. And there's there's actually I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything wrong with doing it that way. It's just Especially if you're the designer and you interface with it all the time and you're the only one interfacing with it most of the time. There's not necessarily something wrong with that, but it is a nice nod to other people as soon as other people have to start looking at it to group it. And and, and so I've I've started doing two different things actually. So so almost all of our products now are two boards. We have one board that uh, interfaces with a panel and we call that typically like our mechanical board and that's where all of our potentiometers and jacks go and then it has connectors that connect to another board and that's our main board that has most of our smt stuff on it and and so i've started drawing one page that on the right side of the page i have whatever my female connectors are and then on a different schematic page on the left side i have all the male connectors that that are uh that interface directly with that and so one of i can't remember which one off the top of my head one the male or the female connector is called j x and then the number and then the female is j y and then the number so if you see j x one and j y one that's the male and female that connect together and j x two and j y two are the male and female that connect together for connector one, two, or however many connectors you have. And that's our inner connect boards. And those are on my schematics as sort of like defaults now, because there's 
they're always going to be there because we're pretty much always do two layer uh, two board stackups now. And then for those connectors, I'm doing net names for the most part uh, because in general, anyone who needs to see a schematic has access to EDA tools in our building. We we're not making PDFs. If I were to do PDFs, I would probably handle it differently because just like looking at a, a at you know pin 15 of this connector is this name and then you have to search the schematic for you know physically search pieces of paper for it that's kind of garbage uh so i would handle it differently if if we didn't have access to digital schematics now now one other thing that i've done uh recently is instead of creating a schematic symbol for a connector basically a rectangle with however many connections represents however many pins. I've actually created some connectors where each pin is its own symbol. It's so like say if if, if I have a 10 pin connector, I'll have J1.1, J1.2, J1. all the way through and then I can connect those pins wherever I want them to. And the way I kind of like that is cuz some of my analog circuits make a lot of sense to draw them in a certain way so you can see what the schematic is doing but they don't make a lot of sense to be all lined up perfectly like a connector, On a connector. Would be. and so you get to choose do you want your analog side to look really pretty and look the way people think it should look or do you want the connector to look really pretty well in my opinion i think the analog trumps in that way because it, it makes the analog circuit easier to read and if you need to trace out this uh, the connector which the only time you would need to trace it out is if there's like a diagnostic problem and mm. in that case you're going to be digging a lot deeper into the schematic so i i feel like in you know it's kind of a toss-up whichever way works best in whatever situation and you could do you could do both really right. is you can um you can draw your pins like that and then you can make a virtual part that is what the connector is right in real life the symbol yeah. And then all the nets that are supposed to be connected to it, so you could technically have both, and that actually might be the best way to do that. Yeah, I think um... I think hybrid is is. I think one of the most powerful tools in EDA uh, uh, EDA world is the ability to use multi-section components instead of having to draw everything as one block with all of its pins. Like being able to break them all out makes schematics so much easier to read, especially things like op amps. Like take a take a standard dual op amp package you're going to have two op amp packages and then you'll have two pins that represent positive and negative power i always draw those as three separate things op amp one op amp two and then the two power pins as its own little chunk because i typically have a page on my schematic that is dedicated to power so i take those two power pins and i put those on the power page such that if you ever want to see what voltage whatever op amp on my circuit is run at go to the power page look up its reference designator and you can see oh this one is run on plus minus 12 volts or whatever and what that does is it cleans up your op amp so you don't have to uh show the power pins on the actual op amp package which is annoying as hell because it just makes things cluttered uh, like if if you got a circuit that uses one op amp sure fine but like my most recent design has like a ton of op amps and it would make my pages just very very large and on top of that the way a standard op amp package is drawn you know you have the triangle yeah 
and and almost and every, minus, almost yeah. every single time you have a, a resistor that's fed back unless you're doing a uh, a comparator symbol. So if you have the plus minus symbols, you're going to have to have net ports that show plus minus, and then if you put bypass caps, those, those are in there too, and then you have to draw a feedback resistor that goes way around all of those things. It just makes everything super ugly and harder to read. Or or you could have been like me and flip the part and not realize that the power and ground were also flipped. <laughs> I remember that. That off-amp got pretty hot. Yeah. It got, it, it, it got about two watts of power through it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, th thanks for that, RF, Dave. Uh, I, I, honestly, you asked that question, I was thinking about it all day because literally this last week I was, I was kind of wrestling with that because I have some projects at work that I'm doing a lot of connectors on, uh, and then I have a handful of projects at at um, at home, the personal projects that, uh, in fact, the stuff I've been talking about with my, um, my DIY pogo pin connector, I was, I was laying that out this week and figuring out, okay, I've got this pogo pin connector. Do I want to represent it on my schematic as one thing? And then I have to draw lines to it, or do I want it to be net names that I've just connect to it? Or do I want to have every pin be its own schematic symbol and connect them wherever they go conveniently? And I actually opted for that last one because I like the to represent this particular thing that it that it connects to in my schematic. I like the way that's drawn, and I don't want to have to put weird net names uh, all over the place. So I represented each pin with its own item, and then I just connected those directly to what they connect to. The uh, yeah, I think we should. It's been a while since we've shared schematics and stuff of what they look like, so we should do that. Yeah. So I I got this uh this uh, news article today about Amazon Sidewalk, and so I shared it with Stephen. And basically, what it's about is Amazon. The title is Amazon Sidewalk draws electronics from TI Silicon Lands and Semtech, which is like basically it's like an article saying Amazon Sidewalk is using like all these parts, and that's about what the article is about. Um, not very interesting in my opinion because like yeah, like how many different manufacturers and are in one of your products like eight nine like yeah, yeah you're going yeah. to use a lot of different manufacturers because yeah, you sure. have to right to get all the features you want anyways i was like what is what really interested me though was what was amazon sidewalk because i'm like my mind immediately went to like solar panel roadways you know it's funny you posted that to me today and without even clicking on the link i was like oh this is a solar sidewalk i'm, I'm yeah that's ready exactly what i thought of <laughs> And so uh, I clicked on it, and I, I'm like, okay, there's no information here about what this actually is. Besides the tagline, Amazon Sidewalk, a new shared wireless network for IoT consumer devices. And I'm like, oh, we've talked about this kind of stuff and had people on the podcast talking about different kind of uh, IoT mesh networks and that kind of stuff. So I'm like, you know, okay. I, I feel like it's been a while since we've talked about the Internet of Turds. Like, it, it's, <laughs> it's really been a while, right? It has been a while. Um, but I was like, okay, what what's the infrastructure behind this? That kind of stuff. So I started looking into it, and I'm like, it actually has nothing to do with sidewalks. That's just the name. It's just a it cute name that they came up with, yeah. Yeah, basically it is a low-power, sub-gigahertz net mesh network that they're going to implement into other devices that they currently have. And so, like, let's say the ring, which is their – that's the doorbell that – like spies on you on your front door 
so it would eventually have, it doesn't yet, I don't think, but it will have another radio in it that's designed to broadcast out into the street. And so that you basically create a mesh network eventually in neighborhoods and everywhere else. And that way, other devices that would normally only work inside your house because your IoT network is in your house, it would work elsewhere as well because you have all these other things broadcasting out. So everything becomes a repeater. Yeah, basically, yeah. Every, um, more devices become repeaters. And since they're outside, like let's say in the ring, for example, it's broadcasting out and doesn't have anything in front of it anyway. So your distance into your into the street is bigger, which is actually a pretty interesting idea of handling the the IoT network problem of like basically the moment you leave your house, your IoT device is useless uh, unless it's cellular connected, and then even then you know now you're talking high power, and so you you eat your batteries up um so very interesting to see what how this goes I, 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 what, what's coming to mind is um gosh uh what's the second christopher nolan batman movie you know where where they put like the cell phones down and they're all like pinging each other and then batman has like cell phone vision and he can oh, see around God, corners I and stuff. About that. <laughs> it, it, I, that's like this is i don't know sort of like that you know, I have seen um, technology based off that, trying to figure out room, what's in a room, based off reflections of waves, which is what that is. Right. It's just they did it with cell phones, and it doesn't make any sense in that regard. <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. Because um, yeah, I, I don't think a cell phone is has enough channels to figure out all the reflections in your room. Because <laughs> that's what you would need. You'd need a antenna that can handle that many kind of reflections and they calculate all that's bananas anyways <laughs> um very interesting idea and there's one video out there of like being able to find your dog if your dog got out because your dog has a, a is currently you know it's i has an iot collar right mm -hmm. and so it would it could tell you what house it's by which is an interesting idea yeah that's cool you could yeah you, i mean Assuming you live in a in a densely enough populated area that also has enough of these things to create yes. the mesh, yeah. But I think their their idea is integrating this into other other products, so it doesn't matter. So, like, if you bought an Alexa, it would have this already. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Uh, yeah, it's just an interesting uh, idea that that instead of building their own infrastructure they're like well let's just toss it into every single consumer device already and does it matter <laughs> you know the well right i i guess the 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 question really comes up like i don't know it, it starts to bring up some some concerns in my head where it's like okay you purchased this thing and you're expecting it to be purely for you but now you are like servicing everyone else and that's fine but do you know you're doing that and yeah, there was a big thing with Comcast slash Xfinity where their boxes would broadcast um, the Xfinity because Xfinity's got a similar idea where you could if you if you have Xfinity, you can find an Xfinity hotspot and just log into it. I think AT&T does the same thing and all those guys still all that do the same thing. But Xfinity was like 
or slash Comcast was like the first company to be like, oh yeah, let's put that on our home modem or our home modems as well. And so like you actually have to go in onto the Xfinity website and opt out of it. That hmm. say don't use my home box as a hotspot for your free Wi-Fi. Now I, I don't think it counts against your broadband. Like it, it classifies the packets as something else. So like it doesn't if you have a broadband cap or whatever it doesn't affect you. But I don't know if Amazon is able to do that. But, you know, know, it's just an interesting idea of, yeah, putting it instead of trying to build out a network and then getting people to buy in on something like this. Like, let's just put in everything we make no matter what. (laughs) Yeah. And doesn't matter. I mean, it's a cool idea. I like I said, it just kind of brings up some concerns because like there's traffic going through your item then that you're not aware of and you didn't purchase it for that so what what kind of controls and safeties do you have you know who who knows what kind of like weird communication is going through your ring doorbell terminal and then the fbi is hitting you up being like we need to gather this information (laughs) you know you got got a bitcoin miner going through your ring ring doorbell now (laughs) yeah um, the oh, man, there was something else I thought of, but I can't remember anymore. Oh well. Cool, cool. So I got uh, I got something fun that I've thrown together. I, I've I've done something similar to this a handful of times, but it's always it's always fun to convert um, parts that are not traditionally intended for through hole into through hole applications. And uh, so, great example is potentiometers. Uh, if if you've ever really spent much time searching for for potentiometers, you can bang your head on a table for a long time trying to find what will actually work for your application, especially if you need a variety of, of potentiometers. There's always the option of if your volume is enough, you can just purchase whatever you want or get them custom made. But if you fall underneath that threshold, then it gets uh, difficult quickly. Sticky. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the big players will stock potentiometers that are more generic, shall we say. So things that are like panel mount and solder lugs. Like if you go to Mauser right now, there's a pretty decent amount of uh, potentiometers available that are exactly that, panel mount and solder lug. And if you want to get like the entire catalog of potentiometers, so all the values and all the tapers, then you're pretty much stuck with that style of connection, panel mount and solder lug, which sucks because that means soldering wires, which sucks mm-hmm. because soldering wires. and Labor. Yeah, lots and lots and lots of labor. And if you look at this exact same potentiometer in the through-hole version, they have it, but they don't have the entire catalog. You're not going to get all the tapers and you're not going to get all the values. And so when designing like a, a, a suite of projects or products, it's nice to know what's available, especially for prototyping and for small manufacturing runs before going into the big stuff. Well, so I've been using these RV24AF potentiometers for a decade now. These are like just your Joe Schmo potentiometers and they have the nice solder lugs on them. And I finally set off to just say like, you know what? I want to convert these into a 
through hole version thing. So I'm holding this up to the camera now. We'll take some pictures and send it to everyone or put it on the show notes. But I made a potentiometer board that just interfaces with these pots. So in uh, these pots have, I don't know, like a an interesting leg on them because of, it's like an eyelet. It's an eyelet, yeah, and it's like a circle with a with a weird curve on it. So effectively, I just mirrored that and made uh, slots in a PCB such that an actual potentiometer can slide in, but there's plenty of extra room and a cutout for the body of the potentiometer. So now, whenever I mount these into a chassis, I can put a row of potentiometers or even you know if i wanted to two rows of potentiometers and have them all interface directly with this potentiometer board and you know what makes i'm i'm seeing where you're going with this yeah is if you ever had to disassemble it you only have to unplug connectors exactly instead of having to desolder wires on potentiometers bingo now here's the thing on top of that uh the way i had previously had this uh, product design is that I had a JST connector on a main PCB and it would go out to three separate wires that would connect up to whatever PCB. So every potentiometer had one JST connector and three wires. Not necessarily, that that's not the, the worst thing, but it is a lot of wiring. And if you ever have potentiometers that, you know, share functions or connect to each other, uh, you're you're doing extra connections and extra wires that you could do on a PCB. So I've taken this board that I'm holding up that has six potentiometers on it now, each one with its own JST connector on it. I could I actually redesigned this board recently, so six potentiometers now only needs two JST connectors because the potentiometers share functions on them. And I put some. I'm gonna guess like ground and power, and then well, you know, honestly, signals. it's in, out, and ground. Uh, and all the pots do all their things on it, and I have a handful of passive components that go on there also. Uh, so it just makes wiring and everything so much easier, and now I don't have to worry about... Um I don't have to worry about, oh, is this potentiometer going to be available? Well, I've got a board that just interfaces with your... Uh, your being the one that's available that's intended for... Uh, panel mount and and wire but my board interfaces with it and the cool thing is is eventually if I get to the point where I do would ever want to uh, go with a uh, a more custom uh, potentiometer I've already proven this board out so I just replace the footprints with whatever works with whatever pot I'm buying and Bob's your uncle at that point so kind of fun I like I like doing these kinds of uh, it's fun to do the mechanical side of how do you make a a part that's not meant to be through hole. How do you turn it into a through hole part? Yeah, I think we just we talked about the like doing the exact opposite. Um, couple podcasts ago, we were talking about a potentiometer that we were turning a through hole into a SMT. Right. Yeah, because because legs had to be bent bent out. Yeah, legs had, and Yeah, and um, by the way, that actually worked really well. I made a little tool that would slide over the legs, and then you would just so it was like a a. Uh, I don't know. It was just like a, a a butter knife, basically. They just had a slot in the end, and the slot was big enough just to fit over the whole legs, and it, and it would the legs would bottom out in the slot, and you would just bend them. Oh, nice. Work great. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. So uh, there is one one thing I want to bring up about this uh, this extra board. So so I've been designing 
this particular product, which now has one, two, three, four, five separate PCBs that go into this product, but I'm designing them all in one schematic. So the way DipTrace works is if you design one schematic and you go over to your PCB, it thinks that all of those parts is one board, right? And so uh, I create all the boards and I put them in an array such that I can break them apart with mouse bites or V scores or however I do it. The biggest issue shows up is like the way DipTrace handles ground is it thinks, oh, all of these things are ground. Well, no, I have separate boards. So the question is, have you ever seen an EDA tool that handles separate grounds well? Because <laughs> I've never seen one that does I think does we, it. we've talked about this before. We, we it, have, The yeah. answer is no. <laughs> yeah, the, right. And and I'm just, I'm, I'm curious to anyone out in the ether out there, if you've ever found one where you can be like, this is a separate board, but like I'm designing it together and I want it to have its own ground. Because what you were saying is basically... Because this is, goes back to the net thing. You can just call it ground one and ground two and ground three. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter. I mean, to the EDA tool, ground isn't a thing. Ground yeah. is just GND as a string that's attached to this net. Right, right. It, yeah, it so doesn't in, care. In its brain, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, I wish it did. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see what you're saying. I, I wish I wish it, it, it knew that these were the same. Like, it, I wish it knew ground on this board and ground on that board is the same, but they don't have to be connected. But they're the so same thing. So you would need to have a virtual name and then you just have, you would have to have two layers of names basically. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, well, and, to... and 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 I've adding I'm adding complexity to this because on one of my JST connectors I'm sending ground to a, this separate board, but I'm also sending a chassis connection to this separate board. And that chassis connection doesn't connect to anything, but it's connected to the chassis. But ground is also connected to the chassis. And so I'm adding lots of confusion in my EDA tool. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier is like, how do you make the schematic easy to read? The schematic should be the easiest thing to read. But EDA tools do not seem well equipped to handle what I'm going for here. I want separate grounds that are actually the same ground. And I want chassis ground that's connected at one spot. Like, I'm adding all the confusion in one project here, you know? Yeah, it might be you, how I would do it is I would call all those grounds separate names. Yeah. So, like, you like you would do it with analog ground, yeah. digital ground. Right. So, you would do that, and so you would have a chassis ground, and then I would make a, a part, right, that is like an SMD pad. That's it. Yeah. And then you could connect multiple pins to that part. And it would effectively be, you know, that's like your star ground, right? Right, right. Yeah. And 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 that's that's sort of how I've already done it. Like and and, and because like that because that's all my only option. Yeah. But on the schematic it'd be easy to read. That's the good thing. Yeah, so so I for for the board for any separate board other than what I'm calling the main one. The main one has the the official thing called GND on it. Yeah. And then all the other boards have the name of the board underscore GND. So, like, they're still nets, but the EDA tool doesn't think that they are exactly connected. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, at some point, you have to be smarter than the EDA tool. I mean, I hope so.
I don't know. Most of the time, I'm thanking the EDA tool for saving my bacon, you know? Because <laughs> if, if you left this stuff up to me, it wouldn't work. All right. One last topic for today. Yeah. We'll see how long this one goes because we're already at 47 minutes. We don't um, have a problem talking. No, we don't have a problem talking. Is, um, so DXF drawings to board outlines. Okay. Generally, this isn't a big deal. Um, but I've run into some DXF outputs from uh, Adobe Illustrator, which is not a proper CAD tool. And so it draws things really weird uh, in its, in its uh, exports. So like I've, I was given a DXF from a customer and I'm tr I was trying to get it to import into Eagle and Eagle was not having any of it. Because um, it would import it, and there'd be like missing half the sh half the stuff on it. So, I haven't fully done this yet because I I got the file today, but the um, I was able to import the DXF successfully into Autodesk Fusion. So what I'm probably going to do is go into Fusion and then export that as a PCB outline that Eagle can ingest. Um, but what else could someone try if you were to say not using Eagle and Autodesk. Because I'm lucky that those those programs talk to each other, right? Um, but what else could you do? So I, I ran into this exact problem just the other day. Uh, and, and the reason I ran into it is because uh, DipTrace does not allow you to create donut pads. So a pad that is just a ring that has like a void in the middle. Uh, it, it, it has no problem making through hole pads, but think of a donut SMD pad. So gotcha. I had to trick so you. It. You want you want the annular ring, but not the hole. Exactly, exactly. So so how do you how do you create that? What I did was I actually created a DXF from Corel Draw where I drew the donut. I brought that into Fusion 360, and then I used Fusion 360 to export a DXF from a DXF. And then DipTrace was fine with ingesting that. It's interesting because I've found that EDA tools tend to not be as happy with taking uh, uh, CAD from an art program. But if you take Fusion 360 to re-export CAD from a CAD file, that seems to work just fine. Because that's the same thing I'm having, is I'm trying to import from an art package DXF. So I bet you how art packages output arcs because you were probably running to arcs issues because that's because I can get straight lines in Eagle, but I can't get the arcs. So I'm going to bet you however art packages define arcs is not happy in a normal engineering CAD tool. And then Autodesk just has some magic under the hood that just can do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it gets both sides of the it puzzle. Both. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we had a we had a customer that had an unbelievably insane board. It was actually not very big. It was maybe like three inches by two inches. So not particularly large. But the board, if you if you turned it sideways, it looked like how do I describe this? Like if you're standing in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral, it looked like the profile of the cathedral and the silkscreen was like this ridiculous 
silkscreen file. And and this and, and and it's funny because this board looks like a cathedral with like the steeples and all the gothic art on it and stuff like that. And it was a power supply PCB that connected to a different board. Like this 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 was incredible. Like most most PCBs, if you look at them, they're rectangular or maybe they have some angles on them. If you looked at the board outline, let's say an average PCB might have between, say, four and twenty vertices or or points on them, right? This guy's PCB had like eight hundred points on it. <laughs> <laughs> it looked really really awesome, but it it also sucked because he gave us that board. And we had to put PCB rails on it such that it would fit onto our uh, conveyor belt. Yeah, and it yeah, was yeah. like, oh, my God, I had to do it by hand. Like, I had to go in and, like, edit points. Yeah, it edit was everything awful. yourself. <laughs> but it looked really cool in the end of the day. Yeah. I, I think that was a DFX, DXF input. Yeah, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. So, um... I know we said last week we're going to try to stream this one, uh, this episode. Uh, there is a hurricane in Houston right now, so I could not. Well, I guess I could have tried. We didn't really have any problems during this whole podcast, but I didn't really. I've been having internet issues all day, so I really didn't want to tempt fate. Um, but if next week is nice and clean, we did test it. There's a little audio glitch we have to work out, but it seemed to work fine. So, uh, yeah, we'll give it a shot next week. Hang tight. We'll actually do it sometime. Yes. This would have been a great episode for it, too, because of how many, um, like, board design stuff we did. Well, please Topics. talk about that stuff in Slack. And and know that if you put stuff in Slack, it might end up on the podcast because you put it on there, and then I think about it all day long. <laughs> no, it's not if. it It's when. It, it's likely. Yeah, it's actually quite <laughs> likely. So. Cool, you might cool. get called out on the podcast. Yeah. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dome. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Mm -hmm.